Isaiah 36, as we turn there, by the way, if you didn't get an outline, raise your hand and we'll get you an outline for tonight. Thanks, Sandy. As we dig in, I need to correct an error that I made last week. Last week, if you were with us, the door was not doing that. <laughs> we know that some of you are a little tired after a long day. Just want to keep you awake. Last week, we spent most of our time setting the stage for this next section of Isaiah, this historical rather than prophetical section. And so we, we took a step back. We looked at the scriptural context, the historical context, Assyria under Sennacherib coming against Judah. We talked about the reasons why, and we talked about how the animus between these two powers developed and the path that Sennacherib took uh, on his way to invading Judah and the allies he overcame along the way. And in verse 1 of chapter 36, the, the cities of Judah that he conquered along the way, the 46 cities that he brags about. And all of that is setting the stage for what happens beginning in verse 2. It, it came to pass in the 14th year of King Hezekiah that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, which is a title, not a name, uh, his ambassador, his emissary, his cupbearer, if you will, with a great army from Lachish, the last of the 45, uh, 46 cities that they'd conquered on their way to Jerusalem, the last city standing between Sennacherib's army and Jerusalem. Um, he, he, that was his staging area, about 30 miles to the southwest. He sent his ambassador, backed by a show of force, uh, to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And he, the Rabshakeh, stood by the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. And we noticed that that was exactly where Isaiah had exhorted Ahaz some years earlier. And Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shibna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder came out to him. Then the Rabshakeh said to them, Say now to Hezekiah, give him a message for me. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, What confidence is this in which you trust? Why are you holding out? Why haven't you surrendered yet? I say, you, you speak of having plans and power for war, but they're mere words. Now in whom do you trust that you rebel against me? How is this rational? Where is your confidence coming from? Look, you're trusting in the staff of this broken reed, Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. Pharaoh talks big. He promises to show up, but when the getting gets tough, he folds. But if you say to me, well, we trust in the Lord our God, is that not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. And that's where I got into trouble. And thank you to the two sisters who graciously pointed that out to me. I had, I, I, I had an idea, nothing more dangerous than a pastor with an idea. And, and as this idea occurred to me in real time, as I was getting excited about it and on my way to making my next point, because it wasn't in my notes and I wanted to get to it before I forgot it, 
I rushed through verse 7 and I said things that were just not true. I said, if you recall, well, this was Sennacherib bragging that on his way to Jerusalem, he destroyed all of the altars of the true and living God and basically was saying in verse 7, my God is better than your God because I demolished all of the altars and nothing has happened to me yet. Which, of course, isn't remotely what verse 7 is saying. Verse 7 is a whole different point, and the point I was making, I was, I was grabbing from a whole different part of the chapter, and I don't know what I was thinking, except that I wasn't thinking. I'd like to blame COVID, but that's getting old. Verse 7 Refer, and you probably know this, refers to an event that we read about back in 2 Kings 18. And the irony is that we were in 2 Kings 18 for half of the study last week. 2 Kings 18, verse 4, he, speaking of Hezekiah, removed the high places and broke the sacred pillars cut down the wooden image and broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel burned incense to it, made an idol out of it. As we read through the historical books, as we read through the time of the kings, especially the divided, excuse me, kingdom, an important measure of a king's faithfulness in God's eyes Arguably, the number one measure of a king's faithfulness in God's eyes was a king's stance on idolatry. Did a king promote idolatry? Was a king inert? Didn't do anything to promote it, but didn't act against it either? Or did a king come against idolatry? And when we get to the closing verses having to do with any given king, Often, the commentary on that king's life is given in these terms. Well, he was a pretty good king, but he didn't destroy the high places, the altars. He was pretty good, but that kept him from being great. Or he was a really good king because he tore down the altars. Hezekiah, by that measure, was a really good king because he was fiercer than his predecessors in removing the, the sacred pillars used for idol worship, worship of gods and goddesses like Asherah and Ashtoreth, and removing the high places, which were often used to worship the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the true and living God, but not according to the will of God. God's will, his, his, his plan, his instruction, his commandment, was that he would be worshipped where? In Jerusalem. With the, with the sacrifices and the priesthood and everything else. The high places were people saying, you know what, I can worship God anywhere. I can worship God in places and times and in ways that are convenient for me. Which is something that people have, have wanted to do, found ways to do throughout history, right? Hezekiah, to his credit, said, no. I, I get that you like the convenience of having your own personal altar, your, your own neighborhood shrine. I get that you like it, that you're attached to it. Here's the problem. God made us 
So God gets to tell us how he wants to be worshipped. And he wants to be worshipped in Jerusalem, at the temple, the way that he's prescribed. And there, there's a whole message to be taught there, right? About how often we direct our, our focus to worship of false gods, but how more often and more insidiously we let false worship, even of the true and living God, creep in. Catholicism would be an example of that. Catholicism ultimately points to the same God we do, but it lets a lot of things get in the way. Mary, saints, all of which flies in the face of John 14, 6. Jesus says, no, I am the way, the one way, the only way. No one comes to the Father but through me. Don't come up with, with new and exciting, convenient and appealing ways that you think you're going to worship God. The way to worship God is always and only through Jesus. Ministry. Ministry can become false worship. And I mention that because I was having a conversation with a pastor yesterday, and I dropped that in conversation, and he seemed really confused when I said the very best idolatry I know is found in ministry because it looks like worship. It looks like devotion. But if the only time I'm reading the Bible is to get ready to teach, if the only time Hannah is worshiping is when she's rehearsing to, to lead tonight, we've let ministry take God's place on the throne. And you're saying to yourself, okay, but that's, that's, that's close to being an idol rather than false worship. It, it's really slippery, and that's the point. It's, it's, very, it's very slippery how false worship can all of a sudden become worship of a false god, can become an idol unto itself, none of which is our point tonight. <laughs> None of which is, is, is our point. I'm just fixing what I broke last week. What I would add, though, before we go on, not only do we read in 2 Kings 18 and in the parallel passage in Chronicles and in Isaiah 36 that Hezekiah tore down the high places, archaeologists have confirmed it. And this is cool. In 2016, excavating the city gate at Lachish, just coincidentally, the, the, the city where Sennacherib is staging at before attacking Jerusalem. In 2016, excavating the city gate, the, the, the center of, of business and commerce of Lachish, um, this, this fortified city, archaeologists found a stairwell at the gate leading up to a large room, a high place. Are you sure this is one of the high places the Bible is talking about? Yeah, because when they excavated that, they found two altars of exactly the kind that they found elsewhere, altars on which were offered sacrifices and offerings to God. But what's interesting is both of the altars that they found originally were made with four horns on the corners. That was typical. But all of the horns had been removed. They, they weren't 
broken or, 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 or they, didn't, they weren't damaged. They didn't come off over the years and over neglect or the collapse of the structure. No, the structure was fine. They found tool marks. Those horns had been sawed off or hacked off. They'd been intentionally removed. And they also found in the center of this high place, in this, in this shrine, a toilet. And, and, and by toilet, they found a large toilet-shaped stone with a hole like you would found, find in a, in a little child's potty chair or in an outhouse, a hole carved out of the middle. It was clear that this had been added sometime after this high place had been constructed. It was also apparently clear that it had never been used. I don't know how you find that out. I don't know what tests you apply, but they seem quite certain that it was ceremonial and not functional. It was symbolic. Why would you put a symbolic toilet in the middle of the shrine? Answer, to defile it to render it unsuitable for worship or for offering. If that sounds familiar, it's because Jehu did the same thing in 2 Kings 10. He did that to a shrine of Baal worship. That one, on the other hand, Scripture tells us, got used. We read in 2 Kings it was a latrine at the time that 2 Kings was written down and recorded. Now, if you really want to get fun on a Wednesday night, Hezekiah is a type of Jesus, a foreshadowing of Jesus. I don't know that he's literally a type. I don't know that Jesus ever says, yeah, he, he was a type of me, but certainly a foreshadowing of Jesus, a, a, a messianic figure. In fact, there are some rabbis who believe he would have been Messiah had he not zigged when he was supposed to zag when ambassadors came to visit. And we'll talk about that when we get there. Obviously, he wasn't going to be the Messiah, but that's how close, that, that, that's how strongly he evokes the promise of Messiah. What's my point? Hezekiah defiled shrines. He defiled places of false worship. What does Antichrist the counterfeit Christ who tries at every turn to imitate Christ do. What does he do halfway through the tribulation? He defiles the temple. He goes into the Holy of Holies and commits the abomination of desolation. Interesting parallel, but all of that brings us back to Isaiah 36 and verse 7, and we're going to get it right this time. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar, the one within sight, the one that he could point to, the one at the temple in Jerusalem. The Rabshakeh is, is saying, you're going you're gonna to trust in your military? I don't think so. You're going to trust in Egypt? I don't think so. You're going to trust in your God? How? Hezekiah tore down all the high places. I don't think God is going to help you. I think he's probably quite mad at you. Because he thought Hezekiah's God was like his God. Capricious and arbitrary and fickle. So if we keep going now, verse 8 is on this page. 
Now, therefore, I urge you, give a pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to put riders on them. He's being sarcastic. He's mocking. He's saying, surrender now. I'll give you an army's worth of horses. Oh, wait, you don't have an army. My bad. He's making fun of them. Verse 9, how then, because you don't have an army, will you repel one captain of the least of my master's servants? You're going to put your trust in Egypt for chariots and horsemen? They're going to do your fighting for you. We've already covered this. He's, he's recycling what he's already said. Trust in your own army? No, he said that in verse 5. Trust in Egypt and their army? No, he said that in verse 6. Trust in God? No, verse 10. What do you think? Have I now come up without the Lord against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. And we know that to be true. It, it seems weird when we first read it. Wait a minute. You're saying that Israel's God, Judah's God, told you, Assyria, to come against Judah. Yeah, we already know that because Isaiah told us in Isaiah chapter 10. Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune which they have prescribed to rob the needy of justice and take what is right from the poor of my people. God is saying, you're ripe for judgment. And woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I'll send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. I will give him charge to seize the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like the mire in the streets. Isaiah has already told us that Assyria is going to be God's chosen instrument of wrath. Now there's some boundaries around what God is going to allow Assyria to do. Isaiah 10 verse 12, It shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, that he will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I am prudent. God has been telling us through Isaiah for a while now that Assyria will be the instrument of his wrath, but when he's done judging Judah with Assyria, he will judge Assyria. Because Assyria is going to go too far. Assyria is going to exceed the boundaries of wrath that God has prescribed for them to administer. And that's what's in the process of happening. Rabshakeh is, is saying, hey, I got a whole army. They're 30 miles away. If I blow my horn, they're going to come. And your army won't help you. Egypt won't help you. Your God won't help you. Surrender now. Verse 11 is on this page still. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the Rabshakeh, please speak to your servants, talk to us in Aramaic, for we understand it, and who do not speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people who are on the wall. So the emissaries from Jerusalem are saying, we can speak your language, and that would be just fine. We'd rather the people in Jerusalem not hear what we're talking about. 
Rabshakeh's response, verse 12, why would I do that? I want them to hear what I'm saying. Because, you know, the chief weapon of terrorists is terror. So he, he then directs his words to the people on the wall, to the soldiers and to the other people of Jerusalem. Hey, you should listen to this because it concerns you. The Rabshakeh said, has my master sent me to your master? Has Sennacherib sent me to Hezekiah and to you to speak these words and not to the men who sit on the wall who will eat and drink their own waste with you? Look, we're going to surround you. We're going to besiege you. It's not going to go well for you. People need to know what's in store if you don't surrender as a city. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out with a loud voice in Hebrew and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Here's my offer. Thus says the king of Assyria, Make peace with me by a present and come out to me. We can, we can, we can come to an arrangement. You can purchase protection. Come out to me, and every one of you eat from his own vine, and every one from his own fig tree, and every one of you drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. This is a good deal I'm offering. It's a better deal than you're going to get from Hezekiah. Beware, let Hezekiah persuade you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any one of the God of the nations delivered its land from the hands of the king of Assyria? And see, this is where I was trying to go last week prematurely. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? Indeed, they've delivered Samaria from my hand. Who among all of the gods of these lands have delivered their country from my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? None of the gods of any of the lands that we've conquered so far have been able to stop me. Your God won't be any different. But they held their peace, the emissaries from Jerusalem, and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment, Hezekiah's instruction was, do not answer him. Listen and report back. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe, and Joah the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn, they were mourning, and they told them the words of the Rabshakeh. We said that these next few chapters, 36 to 39, primarily historical, not prophetical, and that's true. But I can't, I can't help dabble. We've observed a little while ago, Sennacherib, Sennacherib is a shadow, he's a foreshadowing of Antichrist, and a Sennacherib specifically, a Siri in general. Notice what the Rabshakeh is saying on Sennacherib's behalf. God won't deliver you, verse 15. He can't deliver you, verse 20. I will deliver you, and I'll arrange for you, all of you, to eat from your own vine to eat from your own fig tree, to take water from your own cistern. Where have we heard language like that before? Word for word, almost what you find in Micah 4.4. Word for word, almost what we read in Zechariah. 
and very similar to things that we read in Joel and Haggai and Malachi. A picture of the millennial kingdom when Jesus delivers Jerusalem because he's promised to, because he's able to, every man will sit under his own vine and eat of his own fig tree. Remember, Antichrist does not simply mean against Christ. It's anti in the sense of counterfeit Christ, imitation Christ. Satan said, I can be like God. I can be like the Most High. Antichrist says, well, then that means I can be like Jesus. Here's a thought to explore on your own. If Sennacherib then is a foreshadowing of Antichrist, and he is, does that make the Rabshakeh a foreshadowing of the false prophet? Things to think about when you're thinking about things. Let's get back to the chapter, though, as we wrap up tonight. Let's get back to the words that Rabshakeh shares and, and, and the, the threats that he's making and the logic, quote-unquote, logic behind him. What he's saying, if we, if we wrap it all up, if we put it all together, you're all alone. Jerusalem, you're, you're alone, you're helpless. You can't save yourself. You can't find any help in the world. You have no allies there. Egypt has abandoned you, and you won't find help with God. Won't find help, he says initially. Can't find help, he says later. But long story less long, I'm your only option. Doesn't that sound like everything Satan says to us? Doesn't it sound especially like what Satan says to us when we take steps to deal with idolatry in our lives? When we realize this, this, this habit, this pastime, this person, this friend group, this, this anything is getting between me and God because anything that gets between me and God is a bad thing, right? What happens as soon as we determine we're going to set that aside? We're going to be done with it. We're going to live without it. Satan starts whispering. Now you're all alone. And now you don't have that coping mechanism to help. Now you're weak. Can you feel the weakness sitting? It's, 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 it's in your bones, isn't it? It's in your soul. You need that thing that you just got rid of. But you, you said that you're done with it. So now the only place you can turn is me. You said, I'm not going to use that weed to numb myself. I'm not going to use that screen to escape from my life. I'm not going to use sex to medicate. I'm not going to use shopping to alter my mood. And I'm not going to try to find strength in friends in the world or family in the world that I can't depend on. Okay, you cast that all away. What other help do you have? What other hope do you have? You need me. Stop me if this doesn't sound familiar. We said this last week, the theme of this chapter and really the theme of the book of Isaiah, who are you going to trust? Who are you going to turn to? Three important corollaries of that. Three important aspects of that I want to just touch on as we close. The first one that we see here, the first one that we just read, the enemy lies. Satan lies. Sennacherib lies. 
Look at your circumstances. Look at your feelings. They're telling you that you're alone. They're telling you that God has abandoned you. And it's only going to get worse. You're circling the drain. And you better bail now. You better come back to your sin before it gets so bad that even your sin can't help you. So go back to your people. Go back to your pot. Go back to your porn. Go back to your purchases. Go back to deep fried potatoes. It's one of my favorite coping mechanisms. It's the only choice you have. Look around. What are your feelings telling you? What are your circumstances telling you? God has abandoned you. It's a lie. It's a lie when Sennacherib says it to Judah. It's a lie, more of a lie, when Satan says it to us. When we're alone, when we're hurting, when we're lonely, there's a lot of reasons that that might be true. We live in a broken world. And a lot of times that's the only reason that it takes. Sometimes what we're experiencing is the consequence of our own sin. But whatever the cause, whether we had everything to do with it or nothing to do with it, we're never alone. We're never abandoned. God chastens those he loves. But what did we read in chapter 10? I know that we were there quickly. But what was God through Isaiah reminding Judah of? I'm going to chasten you because you need it. I'm going to correct you because you're begging for it. I'm going to let the Assyrian army surround you because it's the only way to get through to you. I'm going to let it happen. But I'm not going to destroy you. God lets hard things happen to us. That's just true. Some of them we create. Some of them just happen. But God allows all of them. Anything that happens to us is father-filtered, right? Happens with God's permission. But that doesn't mean he's abandoned us. In fact, it means the opposite. It means he loves us too much to abandon us. And he's going to use whatever means in his disposal to teach us and sanctify us and refine us and make us more like him. Yeah, God let it happen. That means he's going to use it in our lives because God redeems. If he was going to destroy us, he would have already. If he was going to destroy us, he would have already, and no one could say that it wasn't justice. But he has better plans for us because he loves us. The second thing, first thing, the enemy lies. The second thing we, that, we, that we can take away from this, he lies and he speaks in a different language while he's doing it. In the chapter, there's the back and forth. Are we going to speak Hebrew or are we going to speak Aramaic? Satan speaks the language of fear. He's a terrorist. He lives in the shadows. What do we know about shadows? Shadows look bigger than the objects themselves, right? He speaks the language of what if. What if this happens? What if this happens? That's the language over the world. What if this happens? What if that happens? What if the economy collapses? What if Russia attacks? What if it's all a plot and it's, and it's coming back on us? What if this? What if that? What are we going to do? How can we control it? How can we forestall it? What's our response when Satan speaks to us with the language of fear? Fear is a feeling. 
How do we fight feelings? With facts, with truth, yeah. You fight feelings with facts. And a really important spiritual discipline is, is cultivating that readiness, that willingness, that ability to speak facts to feelings, facts that we find in Scripture, facts that God says in this book, this is what's true about me, and this is what's true about you. When the loneliness of the world and the pain of the world and the worldliness of the world comes against us and, and condemnation feels like a, a thick weighted blanket on us and the enemy is saying, it's too late, it's too much. We have to speak facts to our feelings. When ministry gets hard, because it does, and, 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 and when the disappointment seems to, to overwhelm or outweigh the joy, and I think maybe I'm not supposed to be here, maybe I need to get out of the way and let somebody who, who, who's actually good at this step up. My wife is very good at, at reminding me, hey, why are we here in the first place? Well, God called us. What did God promise? That he was going to use us. Has God said anything differently? No, he hasn't. Okay, so what if we believe that that's still true? Because when we came here, we believed that that was a fact. We need to speak facts to our feelings, and specifically facts to fear. What are facts? God is with us in the fire. It's a fact. God doesn't waste even the hard things, the painful things, the tragic things, he redeems. That's what he does. God redeems. God has a plan. If he's allowed something, he's going to use something. He's already decided how, and it's going to be good. God's waves are above our ways. That's a fact. What he's doing doesn't always make sense. The things he allows in our lives, we don't always agree with. The people that we're trying to love and, and, and seem beyond our ability to reach, to affect, to influence. You know what? Here's a fact. God loves them more than we do. Here's another fact. God knows what it is to be disappointed. God knows what it is to be lonely. Jesus was Lonely like no one in history has ever been lonely. Here's another fact. God does everything perfectly and people still run away from him. Jesus did everything perfectly. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. God did everything perfectly. Adam and Eve rebelled against him. The fruit that we see or don't see is not the only measure of our ministry, and that's a fact. We need to speak facts to our fear, but here's the third and final point. We need to speak those facts to ourselves and not get drawn into a debate with Satan. Notice Hezekiah, type of Jesus, Hezekiah's instructions. Don't talk to the enemy. Come back and report to me. The only thing we have to say to Satan, you and me, is I rebuke you in Jesus' name. 
There's nothing else we have to say. There's nothing else we should say. Because anything else that we say is just going to draw us into a conversation. And it's not going to go anywhere. We're not going to change his mind. We're not going to convince... We don't have the secret sauce that's going to convince Satan to repent. But what might happen is that he might change our minds. Satan is a liar, and he's really, really good at it. So third and final point, don't engage with the enemy. What are the king's orders? Go back and report to him. What should we do? in the face of attack, in the face of fear, in the face of lies. Go back to the king. Go back to our king. Go back and say, you know what? The enemy says, you can't deliver me from this. The enemy says, you won't deliver me from this, but I'm going to worship you. Because I know you can deliver me. I'm going to worship you right now because you already have delivered me. Right here tonight, Jesus has delivered everyone in this room from a much deeper pit than anyone that you might be in right now. I look around the room, some of you are battling illness, some of you are trying to love a prodigal. Some of you are a full-time caretaker. Some of you are, are struggling financially. There's, there's, and I'm just getting started, but, but there's, I don't need to tell you you. you. You know the struggle that you're in. But again, here's a fact. Jesus has delivered every one of us from much greater problems, much more enduring trials, than anything we're facing right now. The way that we know that he will deliver us is he has delivered us. And so the third thing that we take away, in the face of fear, in the face of lies, go back to the king and worship him. Declare him to him. Tell him what you know to be true. And thank him and praise him for it. Lord, we do that now as we close. You're so good. You're so faithful. You're so perfect. You're so merciful. The more we study you, the more we talk to you, the more we see you in our lives, the more, the more we, we, we begin to understand you, the greater we realize is the distance, is the gulf between you and us. You're so good and we're so not. And you reached across that chasm to deliver us because you are able and you are willing and you always have been and you continue to be. God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God who gave his life on the cross. The God who came to seek and save. 
the God who forgives and redeems, the God who lives in us. We worship you tonight.